And I invite you to give your attention to God's Word found in Romans chapter 8. We're taking a break today from the doctor has good news, though we continue to believe that the doctor has good news, whether it be Dr. Poland or Dr. Luke. And uh, give our attention today to this wonderful theme that is the Reformation, the Reformation, as we might say it. For it was on the 31st of October that Martin Luther, you see this, nail, glue, chewing gum, I don't know. Probably not chewing gum, though, right, Bob? What a dramatic day. Legend has it, at least, that uh, Philip the Wise, Elector of Saxony, awoke on the morning of the 31st of October having had a dream, and in his dream, he had seen a, something of a vision, a, an obscure monk approaching that same church door, and with a long quill, he wrote words on the door that glowed with fire, and the quill was so long that it reached all the way to Rome and tipped the tiara on the Pope's head. I have not spoken of Frederick the Wise, to know whether or not he actually had that dream, but it has thus been reported. Whatever happened in the way of dreams, we know that in reality something happened that day that has shaken the world and continues to shake it to this day. And we dictate of conscience the teaching of his word, and as we open the Bible, we recognize its authority, that the Bible is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. That truth has been bequeathed to us because of people like Martin Luther who are willing to sacrifice so much in order that we may be able to worship the way that we do today. So, by way of striking a Reformation theme on this Lord's Day, listen as I read to you God's Word found in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So may the Lord bless this reading of his word as we give him praise for it. Amen. The most damnable and pernicious idea which has ever plagued the minds of men is the idea that poor, sinful, fallen, depraved man could ever make himself good enough to live in the presence of an all-holy and sin-hating God. I perhaps could stop right there and say that's our sermon for the day. Martin Luther spoke those words, at least he did in German, maybe also in Latin. I have brought them to you in English to underscore that we as believers know the importance of trusting in Christ alone. For it is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone that we are saved. As others have said, 
you can perhaps break down all of the religions of the world in which is by grace and that which is by works or some combination of the two. But those two categories are sufficient to describe all of the varied approaches to God. We understand, as God has revealed himself in his word, that if we're to be in a right relationship with him, it must be by his grace alone, not some combination of his saving work combined with our efforts. We affirm, as Augustus Toplady has so eloquently worded in his hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Yes, indeed, Martin Luther though it took time, came to understand the importance of affirming what the Bible says, that the just shall live by faith. Now, in 50 of that truth, but he was getting there. What we find is that in 1517, conditions were very ripe for the events that unfolded. But in particular, they were very ripe for the exploiting of the threat of divine condemnation. Now, everyone has some sense of understanding that there is to be a reckoning. As I've often said, you don't have to teach children in preschool, kindergarten, and elementary school to say things like, that's not fair. How many of us have said it? And how many of us had a teacher fair? That wasn't the response I was hoping for. You know, I was, I was hoping she would reverse her decision and pronouncement and let us do what we wanted to do and go to lunch early. We all have a sense of fairness and justice. There's going to be a reckoning. And, of course, we know faith teaches us that this reckoning, after all, has eternal consequences. Hell is real. If it's not, Jesus deceived us. For Jesus spoke more of it than he did of heaven. And yet, of course... Modern skeptical scholars, those of a theologically liberal bent, would have us believe that hell was somehow the invention of people who just didn't know any better. Backwoods Bible thumpers and all the lot belong in that category, unpleasant idea. Now, let's affirm the notion, but let's also agree that we shouldn't speak of it so often so that one little boy said about his preacher that he talked so much about hell he began to suspect that he might be from there. But divine condemnation is a real notion. It is a real idea. Sin must be punished. God's eyes, after all, are more pure than can look upon sin. The soul that sins must die, the Bible tells us. But what had happened within the theological bureaucracy that was what we refer to as the church was through a series of mistakes in understanding what the Bible to error and uh, to exploiting the masses, using that condemnation as a gun hanging over their heads to enrich themselves by it. Eventually, this led to a, the very lucrative way of exploiting that threat, which came by way of selling indulgences. You might wonder, what's an indulgence? You think, I've indulged people. I'm indulging a preacher right now. What's wrong with that? Well, theologically speaking, indulgences were seen to be a, a way 
out and escape. A type of forgiveness that sin required. This whole doctrine, as complicated as it was, really stemmed from a misunderstanding, a mistranslation, really, of Scripture. Rather than understanding repentance to be what it is, the Greek word metanoia was mistranslated in the Latin Vulgate, rendered by Jerome in the 5th century. And so, rather than uh, accurately sold heart change that results in outward acts of obedience, it was rendered in the Latin for do an outward act or outward acts. Now, Martin Luther, in 1516, had obtained a copy of the New Testament in Greek by Erasmus of Rotterdam. And it was a rather unique version of the Greek New Testament. It not only had the Greek, but it had the, uh, it had the Latin translation in parallel on each page. And Luther, being a student of Greek language, recognized immediately when he came to Matthew chapter 4 that there had been this unfortunate mistranslation of the word metanoia. In fact, today, if you look it up in the, in the New Testament Greek dictionary, at least in one version, you'll find that there are 33 and a half pages devoted to this one word, metanoia. You may wonder how I know that. Well, I've looked it up and I've read through it. And I'll distill it for you. All 33 and a half pages. It means the word is important. They devoted that much time to it because it is such profound significance. So you see, if repentance is a heart attitude expressed to the Lord rather than a listing of things that you do, it makes all the difference in the world. But basing the idea when Jesus said, Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, rather than it being one of repentance of being that we need to do something. It ended up being a rather short leap if if penance has to do with doing something, if, if it's about works that we render, then it's a rather short trip to get from there to saying, well, rather than rendering works... You could give money, which after all, could purchase these indulgences, believing they, as they did that not only did sin warrant eternal punishment, they were willing to grant that Jesus paid for that part of it. The eternal punishment is taken off the table. But still advocating for the notion that something else had to be done. Temporal punishment had to be experienced for sin. Some sort of payment had to be rendered. And by the way... If you weren't able adequately to render that punishment in this life, it would be exacted from you in a place called purgatory. Now, if you want to look up where purgatory is in the Bible, I would say, as John Calvin might, good luck with that. You can laugh. It's okay. I get it. There is with this, this false teaching that had entered into the world and was being used against people as the church found itself in financial straits, trying to figure out a way to, to fill the coffers, as it were. And there was a lot of details that I'm glossing over. But the bottom line is, there came a man by the name of Johann Tetzel, who came not into Luther's town. He wasn't allowed there, but 
he came to the river just across the border to sell indulgences. People were led to believe that they gave money. Their temporal punishments could be forgiven. They would be given a piece of paper with a signature, a seal on it, which said they were forgiven. And supposing that the whole system was built on a house of cards based really on a false notion of that word metanoia, said, I will make a hole in his drum. He wasn't a man to mince words. So there's Tetzel. All of the sales techniques of the day being brought to bear. As it's been rendered into English, you know, something like when a copper penny into the kettle does clean, so the soul of your your soul of your loved one from purgatory will flee. Luther set out to oppose this idea. And so he drafted his 95 theses. Now, it's interesting because we understand Luther's major tenet to be the just shall live by faith as he drew from Scripture. But you'll notice in 1517, if you take the time to read those theses, you really don't find that doctrine highlighted there. What you do find is the emphasis on repentance. For example, in number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Not an act or a series of acts, but a real sorrow for sin and a turning away from that sin and embracing Christ. That's to take place over a lifetime. The The word repent didn't mean once and done. It meant keep doing it. After all, we know we live in perfect lives. How many of you have only had to apologize once in life for making a mistake? If you've only apologized once, we need to talk. Sorry for the people that live with you. You're going around singing the lyrics of that country song. Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way, aren't you? If the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, we realize there's an ongoing need to acknowledge sin and to repent of it. And that's what Luther says in thesis number one. And number two, he said, this word for repentance cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. That is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. This was hot stuff. This caused a stir together with the rest of the 93. So let's understand what Luther was doing. He was out to oppose Tetzel. He was selling these indulgences, luring people into a false sense of assurance that is not taught in Scripture. Only God forgives sins. Well, that's a lecture. Let's wrap this up. Look at. Chapter 8, verse 1. Condemnation means damnation. There's no mincing words. That's not an excuse for preachers to be able to cuss from the pulpit. It just is what it is. Sin deserves God's condemnation. There's no way around it. He is holy and we are not. And so when we read that word in chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans, we realize as... Greek scholars have pointed out that this word refers both to the divine sentence and its results. 
So it's not just that moment in which God pronounces a person guilty and condemns them. It is the ongoing carrying out of that sentence, which is really the essence of hell. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, as you have there in your outline. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That is condemnation. It's not catching a cold or hitting your finger with a hammer when you're driving a nail. We might be prone to think, well, I did something bad, so wham. No, your sin deserves what I just read from 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 through 9. Not a common cold and not a whack on the finger with a hammer. God's wrath. Wrath which is revealed from heaven, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Not manufactured by theologians or preachers. God's wrath as revealed from heaven is a reality. Now, that's a strong word. But we have another strong word with it. And so here's another Greek lesson for you. No means no. None, nobody, nothing, never, not any at all, not any. Greek dictionary. No means no. You've got two strong words together there. We see that the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What we see is that Jesus' life and death and resurrection are all sufficient to procure for us eternity. As I've often said, there isn't anything left to do. You can't add to that which is perfect. What work could we possibly render to God that would, that would rise to the level of Jesus' righteous life, his perfect works? What could we possibly do? Minus wood available, sanded it to the smoothest that it could possibly be sanded, and then he finished it with the most beautiful finishing products on the market. He brought it to his neighbor in its completed condition and gave it to him. And imagine that man who received the gift going back to his shop and coming back with a piece of sandpaper and starting toward that table. What would the craftsman do? Now, I don't want to suggest that somebody as nice as Jim Robinson would, would, would throttle him. <laughs> Having put all of that effort into it, what possibly could that receiver of the gift using a piece of sandpaper do for that table that the craftsman had not already done? What do you think you could add to what Jesus has done for you? That's when you begin to get the essence of grace and you have a question like that in your mind. And so that's why it says back in chapter 1, verse 17, quoting from the Old Testament, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Now, I want to give you another lesson here in uh, grammar, if I may, and I'm getting outside of my depth, so I want to be very careful in saying what I say. There is a little dot at the end of that sentence. That little dot in English is a period. That means the statement is completed. There's not anything that follows. So do you hear me when I say, the righteous shall live by faith, period. That's the gospel. 
No guilt in life, nor fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Dr. Herschel York of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Oh, but now something goes viral. Oh, it's all the rage. Dr. York, in uh, speaking at a, at a Baptist church, recounts how that now a couple of weeks ago now, two activists with the organization called Just Stop Oil entered the National Gallery in London and walked into room 43 and up to Vincent Van Gogh's 1888 painting entitled Sunflowers, estimated in value, by the way, at $84.2 million, and threw two cans of Heinz tomato soup on it. Then they took out glue, put it on their hands. Yeah, I read that, and I thought, how awful. That beautiful painting ruined by cans of soup. That afternoon, however, the National Gallery issued a statement. There is some minor damage to the frame, but the painting was unharmed. As Dr. York pointed out, they prepare for scenarios like that. There was an invisible, almost imperceptible, veneer of glass over top of that painting. And those adolescent-minded eco-terrorists throwing their cans of soup on there did nothing whatsoever to the painting. Is that not a reminder to us? As we dredge up our past and the sins and the transgressions that would forever separate us from God. And they're hurled at the frame of our lives. But because of Jesus, none of it sticks. Christian, listen to me very carefully. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the gospel and for those who have proclaimed it down through the ages and by whose efforts we sit here today and are able to marvel all over again at the wondrous person and work of Jesus. O Father, Bless us, we pray, that with our feeble minds we may be able to grasp this glorious truth and to live life as those who really believe that in Jesus there is no condemnation so that no organization on earth or enemy in hell could manipulate us or otherwise take advantage of what would have been our guilt. That, Lord, we would confess with all of the saints throughout all ages 
that righteousness is by faith, period. In Jesus' name we pray. Oh, what a foundation. What a firm foundation. We don't have screens, so you'll need to take your worship folder and get the lyrics from there. So let me give you a moment just to do that because I want us to sing all of this together. Take those lyric sheets from your worship folder as we affirm together this great, grand, and glorious truth. Oh, what a foundation and how firm it is. Let's stand So remember, I'll pronounce the benediction. You're welcome to leave if you want to, but otherwise, hang around. There's a good meal. If you'll listen to the guy that talks right before that, that's your price of admission. So Pastor John's going to come immediately after this. But whether you stay or go, whatever you do this day, receive God's blessing. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore. And everyone said together.